Okay. Welcome to Scoop Du Jour, Joe Barksdale. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to bring in former LSU and NFL offensive lineman, but now you are a musician, a singer, songwriter, producer, mm-hmm. and a comedian. You are a fellow podcast host. You're also writing a book. You've got a lot of things on this resume, and we will dive into all of them first. Just thank you for being here. Really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure I- to be here. There are so many things, like I said, um, that we want to jump into. And um, I think you've kind of been pretty open about the fact that a lot of people know you as a former professional football player. But I I read on your website, you said it was never really your dream to Mm -hmm. go to the NFL. Talk to me through that. Talk me through that. And just tell me a little bit about how you got there then. Um, Looking for attention. I mean, at the end of the day, that's that's what it was looking for attention. But I mean, yeah. when I was <clears throat> when I was in high school, up until high school, I thought I was going to be an engineer designing the inside of cars. And I got kicked out of an engineering camp over the summer. I needed something to do over the summer to stay out of trouble. And remember, the Titans had recently come out and I'm like, them dudes look like they were in shape. I can get a shape playing football. And uh, one thing led to another. and But I would say that I just kept trying to get better. Um, I always knew I had more. So I was trying to, you know, figure out different ways to get that more. And it got me into the NFL, um, which I'm very grateful for. But it wasn't until, like, around the time the Mamba Mentality book came out and that kind of thing where I realized, like, I don't, I don't love football. Like, I don't want to be remembered you know, as a football player, I feel like there's way more to life. And it was, um, we were playing the Chiefs, losing. And uh, it was, um, it was a light bulb that went off in my head. It took, what, two 53-man rosters, two organizations worth of football players, front office people, um, staff to sell out, uh, you know, sell out a stadium. And then, then, someone like Taylor Swift is playing the same stadium like three nights in a row sold out. And I realized I wanted to do something more significant. You know, around the time that the um, the knee protest thing happened, I realized I didn't have a voice, you know, in the NFL. And I think, you know, it's very important to me. I don't think, I know that that's very important to me. I got a lot to say. So it was a combination of things that led me to where I'm at now, but I'm happy to be here. There's so many things that you just said that kind of explain exactly who you are. So the the first thing I want to follow up on is the fact that you said the Mama Mentality book came out. And I think I heard that you'd met Kobe Bryant and he became a mentor of yours. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. But we, uh, I don't think we ever really talked about sports. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think so. What did y'all talk about? Um, art and, you know, his plans for the future as far as, like, books and stuff he had going. And, you know, there was just this – there were multiple little uh, – what's the word? Like, universes, you know, that he was building. You know, like the Harry Potter universe or the Star Wars universe. And I think that he would have been, like – you know, in the end, I think he would have been the closest thing to, like, Black Walt Disney that we have ever had in the country, if that makes sense. Because, I mean, people have tried to say that about Tyler Perry, but, like, I understand, you know, I respect the hustle, respect I'm not trying to take nothing away from him, but, you know, when you're talking about Disney, you're talking about, like, molding kids' minds and, you know, um, letting them know that anything they want to do is possible and that kind of thing, the hope, the wonder. I think that leaves you by the time you're watching Tyler Perry movies. And when you talk about hope and wonder and art, and you also mentioned kind of looking for attention um, as what guided you to wanting to get to the NFL, then you transitioned to this music career. You always had a love for music, but what made you take that step and just say, I'm going to hang up the cleats, the jersey, all the things and and make that step for real when you still had time in the NFL. 
when I saw how serious Kobe was about, you know, the things he was doing, talking to him about when did he realize it was time for him to retire? Granted, I was not about to play 20 years. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I I remember him talking about how he knew it was time to retire when he was thinking more about what was going on off the court than what was happening on the court. And in my mind, I'm like, damn, that's been happening for years. Uh, so, I, <laughs> you know, I need to uh, I need to stop. Um, and it was honestly like a a faith thing. And I don't mean a faith thing like, you know, I went to church and the Lord told me to stop. I mean, a faith thing like, you know, investing in yourself, kind of like, you know, The Rock did, kind of like what Kobe was doing, you know, what Drake did, those kind of things. Take me to, you were talking about the kneeling um, and the NFL didn't really take a stance in that way or um, maybe, you know, just kind of didn't have all the answers, didn't say or do what everyone was thinking. Um, what what were you thinking in that moment? And, and where did you kind of get clarity during that time that was like, I don't really have a voice here? I'll say it was around the time. I think it was the year before. It was the year before the news. Eric Gardner got killed. Um, I wrote, I can't breathe on my cleats. They were like, that's going to be like $10,000. I was on my rookie deal at the time, but I'm like, it, it costs money to speak up about people who were murdered. You know, um, that was kind of the first. find you? Yeah. Well, they, they didn't find me because I changed my cleats, but that was what was going to happen if I didn't. Wow. Um, and around that time, like you had NBA players wearing like T-shirts at warmups and that kind of thing. And I started to notice the disparity between the NFL and the NBA. The NBA legitimately seems to be like, you know, some kind of organized, structured family, whereas the NFL is like this machine that chews you up and spits you out. And if you've had enough cycles, they'll put you in the Hall of Fame. But I mean, it's, it's different. You know what I mean? Like it's basketball just seems to be more of a team thing. The NFL just seems to be very like every man for himself, um, you know, that kind of thing. And I heard too that you, you know, kind of struggled with playing that team sport at times. What was hard about that for you? Well, I hate being on teams. I hate being on teams. In fact, I realized I hated being on teams. Well, I already knew that, but I realized that when I went to uh, California to sing with the NFL Players Choir, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I hate being on teams, you know, um, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but, yeah, I mean, most of the time is because all the time is because, number one, I just don't fit in. Um, and being neurodivergent is a conversation in and of itself, so – it's hard being neurodivergent on a team with a bunch of people that don't see things like you do and not feel crazy. So, did you know you were neurodivergent when you were in the NFL, or did your diagnosis come after? It came after. How how did the diagnosis come? Um, how did you I find remember, out? I was. Uh, I remember talking to my therapist about it, and she told me I should. Um, you know, she referred me to a specialist. I remember talking to her about how I hate being around people because I feel like I'm acting how a human being is supposed to act, but I feel like one day someone's going to figure out that, like, I'm not, and, you know, that kind of thing. And that led to different conversations, which led to her, um, you know, uh, referring me to the um, specialist, the autism specialist. And that, that's probably hard, too, being diagnosed with an autism specialist when you're an adult, especially now early intervention and diagnoses come when, you know, children are so young. What was that like on you to be an adult? You'd, you'd known something was off, but then you kind of have an official diagnosis when you're an adult. What was that experience like for you? I mean, it was it was great. It was weird because it was, you know, there's part of you that's like, 
we don't really talk about we didn't really talk about autism, you know, when I grew right. up. Right. Um, so I guess at first I was a little confused, did a bunch of research. Cause when I was first diagnosed, I was like, cool, we going to Vegas. And <laughs> and I'm like, it doesn't work that way, you know. Um but yeah, I started off doing research and it was a very big relief. Um and explained a lot. Yeah. And my life would be different if I had known earlier. So uh, and I always say, like, I wouldn't do anything differently. But, yeah, like, I would have never got kicked out of the engineering camp if they had known and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, it gave you, like, those answers. and But still, everything yeah. happens for yeah, a reason, yeah. right? But it made me more comfortable with just myself and who I am. And as opposed to me asking myself, like, what's wrong with you? You know, um, I'm just different. Sure. So it gave you kind of this explanation, right? That you never really loved being on a team, but um, it still gave you a place to kind of channel that energy. But then you realized your was your first love always music or when did you kind of find that love and then decide that that was, I know you said you decided that you really wanted to pursue it when you met Kobe. Um, when did you decide that you really wanted to make it a career? About the time I started getting good at guitar, um, yeah, around the time I started getting good at guitar and I started actually writing songs that I didn't think sucked, <laughs> um, that was definitely a, you know, I look at that as a checkpoint. And then just um, learning music theory through the guitar, opening up so many other avenues as far as, <clears throat> as far as being able to play other instruments and teach yourself and um being able to pretty much become a composer and a symphony orchestra at the same time um and with that evolution came you know a hunger for more and i realized i couldn't you know like i can't be in the league working two jobs like <laughs> you totally. know what i mean it's like how'd you think the game went oh you know it was fantastic but i gotta get out of here i gotta shut like you know what i mean it's <laughs> Your mind was like in another place. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I never really connected with teammates for real. Um, and honestly, like even after the autism diagnosis, sometimes I wonder who people met. You know what I mean? Like, mm. did they meet me or was it someone I was trying to be? That kind of thing. But being around people in general, everybody just wants to do small talk. I hate small talk. I hate it so much. Um, and that's what, you know, it's a lot of small talk in the locker room. So most of the time I'm by myself anyway with my headphones on. So the, you know, thought process of music is, you know, um, you know, just going around in my head. And I realized how much better things were with music playing versus without music playing. Um, so when all those things came together and I realized I could write music that didn't suck, I was like, oh, OK, I can actually be good at this. Cool. You know. So that was your thing. And then I wrote, I read that you attribute your sound, though, to all the places football brought you. Mm -hmm. So talk yeah. to me about that. It's cool because, you know, um, you know, teams are in big cities and big cities have cultures, sometimes multiple cultures. Um, big di Different big cities have different popular music that you're going to hear. I mean, traveling was honestly probably the best part of football. Yeah. Um, just being able to go to so many different places, see so many different things. Um, and also the consistency of the schedule. I love consistency. Uh, but yeah, you know, listening to different music, London included, talking to random people. I don't mean like walking out in the street and talking to people, but they're usually people that would be helping the team that were from the city, uh, that kind of thing. Talk to them about, you know, different artists that they listen to and that kind of thing. And of course, you know, the algorithm with Spotify, figuring out what's hot in your area. Um, and then also living in some of these cities like California, you know, I learned how to play like jazz and, you know, like I learned how to play soul music kind of here in Texas, but I've kind of been learning soul my entire, you know, music, whatever. I learned how to play the blues in St. Louis. You know, I, I learned alternative rock in Detroit um and yeah 
So between traveling to other cities and then also being in different cities with a guitar, it's hard not to, uh, you know, experience a bunch of different music. Yeah, that's so cool. My first job was in Greenville, Mississippi. So the Delta and the home of the blues. And that was just like such a big part of our culture living Mm -hmm. there. And it was, you know, something like you said, everywhere you go has culture and in so many parts, but music, Mm -hmm. you don't realize like until you live somewhere, what kind of their heart and soul musically is. So Mm -hmm. for someone who doesn't know your music, how would you describe it? Um, in terms of like the vibe or the inspiration on the style? I call it like electric soul slash alternative soul. Um, Just because like I said, it's rooted in soul, but there's a lot of different places that it goes. (laughs) I used to say that my music was like, if Marvin Gaye, Jimi Hendrix and uh, Sly Stone were writing music together and Kanye produced it, but we're just gonna switch Kanye out for like Mike Dean. Yeah, uh, I, I think we can do that now. It sucks, though, because, like, and I know nobody asked about this, but, like, the college dropout still ain't going nowhere. You know what I mean? Like, it was still, and it always will be, like, a, you know, a, a game-changing album. Yeah. yeah. Um. So part of me does want to say, like, yes, he is a musical influence, kind of like how people can be your influences on the field but not off the field. Kind of like that. Because it's still, I mean, you can still hear it, you know, just like people can hear Jimi Hendrix in my music. Like, you can still hear it. Um, and musically, the man's fantastic. Once again, yeah. we talk specifically. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. I get that. I've had people had the conversation with me specifically, even about Kanye. Um, and I'm I'm Jewish, so it hits home right to me mm-hmm. right, right now. Um, and I had somebody reach out to me and say, you know, I want to separate his music from what he's doing. And I do think there's a place to do that, right? Um, But then it's also hard because from what we're seeing right now, you don't want to support someone. And when you've listened to these musics on on Spotify or something, you're you're continuing to support. You named the airport after John Wayne, who said that there's a master race, which is white people. You know, you got blackface. Volville acts, those were a thing. You got people living in the same country that they were enslaved in. You got poems that we have, not have to learn, but there's poems that like different historically black fraternities and sororities learn that were written by racist white people. Right. I'm saying all that to say, you can, we can look back through history at a bunch of different things. You know, I mean, the police in this country started as slave catchers. Like, I, you know, so I guess for me, someone that's, you know, also lived in the country and had like a huge Jewish community in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Most of my teachers were Jewish. It's not like me saying I got a black friend, but you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, yeah, like I grew up learning the holidays and the culture and the traditions and that kind of stuff. Um, which was weird because I didn't realize it until like after college and I started, you know, just randomly having all this knowledge about like Yom Kippur and uh, Passover and that kind of thing. And I'm like, wow, those teachers really did, you know, like they did me good. Yeah. Um, But I think that if we don't separate the art from the person, then there's a lot of artists that are just gone. Like a lot of artists that are gone. And I don't mean just in music i'm talking about you know comedy painters uh writers um i I mean the dude that wrote amazing grace was a slave trader we sing that thing all the time like you know everybody's got a version of amazing grace um but yeah like even like little terms that we use like picnics right things like that so master bedroom yeah yeah um weddings at plantations but yeah like I I, you bring up an interesting point I think it just it it probably hits at different times right we talk about what's going on this is just like when he says well it's not just like when he says slavery was a choice but it makes just as much sense like which is none you know (laughs) right Um, right which is no right exactly what he says doesn't make sense 
And as such, um, being a mental then, health advocate, my man, I mean, I, I'm, I know I'm pretty sure people said this today, blow in the face. My man needs therapy. So Look. talk to me about that. You are such a mental health advocate. You just took the words from, from what you said. And I know your podcast is um, to kind of destigmatize talking about mental health and, and kind of walk me through what, what got you um, to be able to talk about those things and um, just to be able to be so open about mental health. I would say the main thing that helped me be so open was, well, two things. Um, one, you do just want to educate people because there's always someone that's trying to learn. Um, and I realized that if I had the motivation of educating people, I would learn more about it. Um, so that was one. And then two was just being the voice that I wish that I had, which also made me learn more about it because I wanted to be able to articulate it better for the small child within us all. But, you know, um, and then, of course, you know, the diagnoses and taking the medicine and having days where I'm like, oh, this sucks and, you know, that kind of thing. And if nothing else, I would like to be, you know, that that voice that a lot of people, you know, like maybe I'll tweet something about depression or something and people are like, yeah, this, this is what I'm talking about. You know, if I can help people communicate with each other better or, you know, get out how they're feeling or just be okay with talking about how you're feeling. And you don't have to tell everybody, you know, like you can have a close group of friends or you can even talk to those friends one-on-one, -on -one, but, and it's weird because a lot of the stuff I say, I don't do, which is, it makes me feel bad. Like my pastor was talking about that in church last week. He said, you know, whatever he tries to preach on, he tries to make sure that like he does, but he's human, you know? And Cause I don't call anybody like I, <laughs> as it's much as I'm like reaching out advice. for help. Yeah. That's we true. all, we all, I think we all struggle with that. Right. Like yeah. I'll tell my friends all the time. I, I think I give great advice. I, I think I'm the friend people call all the time and I'm like, Oh, I, I should do that. I should, I should do that thing that I'm telling you right now, you know? And it's like what you're saying. We don't yeah, always do hard. what we're explaining, but it's, it's easier said than done. Right. That's true. Yeah. But that's, I mean, I'm big on that. And I mean, I I think because I look at things differently, I have found a different lane of more like just not brutal honesty, but just like raw honesty. You know, like if honesty was steak, like, hey, we tapped it on the grill, it's raw. Like that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, the people are, I don't know if the word is too afraid, to i mean at the end of the day it's based in fear people are too afraid but i'm not i mean i you know it's and i think the reason that these conversations do work is because they come from a personal place not necessarily like me picking people out and using them i use myself as the example um and i think that maybe that adds some kind of credibility to it kind of like if you got a coach that plays your position versus you know so coach when'd you play oh i've just been coaching my whole life man if you don't shut the hell up but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so you've been playing Madden in first person. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's um, that those are probably the main things, you know. And because like even with the, you know, there's a bunch of people saying like, you're not alone. That doesn't help me at all. Like, no, I am alone. Yeah. I'm in a room by myself right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like kind of like when COVID happened and, you know, people are in mansions, like we're all in this together and people are in apartments like, no, we're not, you know, um, kind of the same thing with that. I, I never want to be like cliche that even affects like the type of community service I do. Cause there's enough of people, there's enough people doing the mainstream things. So what do you do? Backpack giveaways in Detroit. The backpack giveaways have become full-blown events now, haircuts, um, people's nails getting done, bouncy houses. Of course, you got to fill out that uh, liability waiver. There's, <laughs> there's <laughs> no accident. <laughs> oh, we have musical performances, a mental health panel, kind of like, you know, just, just a little event to give back to the community. Um, it grows every year. Aaron Amos is actually the person who's over that. So shout out to him. Um, I don't know. I just gave a random shout out like this is an award. Anyway, hey, uh, <laughs> if, if Aaron's listening or whoever's listening, you know, true. like a community service plug around here. True, you're right. <laughs> but yeah, that's and of course, you know, well, not of course, but like I really like adopting families in the winter for Christmas. 
that's something I started like the year after my rookie year. Um, you know, there's nothing like helping people, at least in my mind. I mean, even if you look at everything I do, it's to help people. Like even with the comedy and the music, that's why I mentioned mental health and like certain things so much. Cause in my mind, like I want to help people. And if I don't do it, who will? So you mentioned comedy. Mm-hmm. I watched some of your stuff on, on Instagram. You're funny. Thank like, you. I, okay. So when did you realize that you could, or that you wanted to do this? Um, and, and how, how did you make it happen? I realized I wanted to do stand-up comedy after my first ever, like watching my first ever stand-up comedy show. I was probably 14. Who that was, was my first. Um, Damon Wayans. Okay. Um, and I remember just watching and I remember thinking like, how do you, you know, this man's just free flowing with this entire monologue that he's doing. How do you write jokes? How do you do any of that? And then over the years, you know, you watch a bunch of people, Dave Chappelle, John Mulaney, Bill Burr, Chris Rock, you know, Roy Wood Jr. Um, and you start to, you know, you have the respect for it, Patrice O'Neill. You have the respect for it, um, but you don't think, you know, you can do it. But people are always telling you how funny you are. And then eventually, you know, you start to be funny in a locker room full of people with a whole bunch of different backgrounds, which means you can be mainstream funny. And you still don't believe that you can do comedy. And then you retire from football to pursue a music career. You know, you retire from football to be more available for music shows. And then a global pandemic hits and comedy shows are the first things that open back up. And you realize you need to get back on the stage somehow, some way. And in a moment of desperation, you find your purpose. That's really cool. I've so one of the podcasts I listen to, um, one of the hosts does comedy, and she always says, like, there's a difference between being funny and writing stand up. Was it hard? Was it hard to I mean, like, yeah, you said you were funny and you were funny in the locker room, but then you sit down and you're trying to write a show. Hardest thing was no, the hardest thing was learning how to do it. Mm. After I learned how to do it, it was uh I'm not saying it's automatic, but like I mean I'm recording a special next year. Okay. Uh yeah, it's in May. I'm figuring out the city right now. Um but yeah, it'll be an hour long special. Um I will have a stopwatch on stage. No, I'm just playing. You (laughs) said what? Just figuring out like the timing, you mean like your comedic timing? And is that what you mean by figuring it out? Oh, no, 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 no. Figuring out the actual like date of the special, date and location. Oh, but like it, it came naturally, like stand up writing the joke. Oh, I would say, yeah. Like when I realized, I think the hardest part of stand up, two hardest parts of stand up, three hardest parts of stand up. The first one is you have to be funny. Like before you get on stage, I do believe people can learn how to be funny. But I believe the people who have to learn how to be funny have like a low ceiling, whereas mm-hmm. someone who's also who's already funny, you know, depending on how vulnerable you want to get and what you want to do and who you want to be, like you could go all the way. So I would say you have to be funny. I would say it's weird. Like part of you has to hate yourself to get back on stage. I, I mean, and I there's the brutal honesty. Part of you has to hate yourself to get back on stage after your first open mic. Okay. Um, Can you explain that? I think the reason that people are more afraid of public speaking than death is because they're afraid of being embarrassed. When you're dead, you're dead. When you're embarrassed, you have to walk off stage and live, you know? and your first open mic is embarrassing. I don't know yeah. a comedian that would cut their first open mic footage on like, yeah, this is this is <laughs> shit right here, you know. Um, <laughs> and so to get back on stage after the first time, I mean, you, you know, what what do people say? Like a glutton for punishment? Like it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Like comedy, I would argue, is a painful thing. It's a painful process to become funny, and that's your whole life. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, funny people, like I said, truly funny people, they're not, I'm not saying they're not mentally healthy, but there's some kind of brokenness in there. 
and you can see it more and more the deeper you get into the comedy you start to see you know who's like broken like you because they're going to be who are the funniest and who people see when you get on stage but you eventually have to figure out who you are that's the third thing you have to figure out who you are when people are like oh you're so funny you got to bring that person on stage and recreate those same scenarios if that makes sense because you got to be yourself you know and then oh four you got to be vulnerable vulnerable you got to be you got to be willing to be vulnerable and that's part of that hate yourself thing it's something to get on stage and talk about a childhood trauma and no one laugh like you know and you're like i just i just bore my soul out here people are like crickets <laughs> yeah and it takes you know i mean it, it takes time to keep coming back with that same joke and writing it over and you know continuing to work it out and that kind of thing um but like I say, you know, the first time is always the longest time, but there's a lot of people who will forever just be nameless, faceless comedians because they just run and do the same shtick about things that everybody can do. I feel like until you're telling jokes that only you can tell, you're not really doing comedy. I mean, and I know that's coming from like me, but I'm just saying, you know what? Fuck it. It is coming from me because one day... One day I will be known as a great comedian. I'll be like, you remember what Joe Barksdale said? I mean, back then we thought he was a little arrogant, but you know. We had him on the podcast. Truth. Yeah, but it's the truth. Heard him on Scoop Du Jour first. So you, is you it heard like, it here first. Is it therapeutic a little in a way? Because you, like you said, you're kind of sharing all of these things, but you're also kind of grappling with them at the same time or later, you know, like you said, childhood trauma or whatever it is. Is there a little therapy in comedy? I would say... First of all, comedy is not a replacement for therapy. I don't see too not many a replacement. people. Yeah, and I I get it too though. Therapy is not cheap. But if you have the if you have the opportunity to take therapy and you're doing comedy and you're not, I can't. Come on, man. Like, come on. You know, uh, if you have the opportunity to get therapy in general and you're not, come on, man. Yeah. You know, um, like I said, Kanye West wouldn't be Kanye West if he was still in there. Anyway. Like all this happened when he stopped going to therapy and taking the medicine, which is why I, which is why I stay in therapy and take my medicines. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's definitely therapeutic. You know, things have therapeutic traits. I would argue though, it's not therapeutic on the stage when you deliver it. It's therapeutic the first time someone laughs at it. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Because it's, it's together, and it's like. I look at comedy like building a house and people, you know, standing on stage with nothing and building a house. And if people, the more of the house people can see, the harder they laugh, you know? Um, so, yeah. Well, you kind of mentioned too, at the start, like you got into football, you wanted to have a, a, attention. Um, and I, I it's not a mentally healthy trait. I've always wanted to be famous. Yeah. So, so talk to me about wanting to be famous and, um, music taking you there and comedy taking you there and then the NFL did a little bit too. Um, so I've started a serial killing career. I'm just playing. <laughs> Maybe one day I can get a Netflix show. I want Dwayne The Rock Johnson to play me. No. <laughs> um, I mean, who doesn't want The Rock to play them? Um, but yeah, well, that could be a whole conversation for another day about the romantic romanization of serial killers on Netflix shows. Yeah, that's true. Um, Some of y'all wilding. I, 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 I watched 30 minutes of Dahmer with my boyfriend and I was like, I'm out. I'm not. I don't oh, really? Like, I don't like, um, I'm really squeamish and I don't like gory stuff. So that's why. Um, like, I, I think I could watch a documentary on it, but not the show was too much for me. And we're, we're also watching The Watcher. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yes, me and my wife are supposed Why am I whispering? Me and my wife are supposed to be starting that soon. Oh, you're, supposed, you're whispering because you're supposed to watch it. Yeah, we are. But I watch like this. Um, if people are listening, they're not going to see this. But I watch, with, I cover my eyes from some some stuff because I'm so easily spooked. Okay. Um, but yeah, that I don't remember what we were talking about. But um, yeah. Me that, neither. <laughs> Okay, so you're supposed to watch that. What else do y'all like to do? Let's let's get to some rapid fire fun stuff. So you're supposed to watch that show. What do you guys like to do for fun? Um, separately or together? Both. 
together uh hanging out with the kids is a lot of fun kids say some of the funniest stuff and they do some of the funniest stuff like we got a three-year-old i'm four-year-old and a five-year-old and just the other day out of nowhere you just hit a four-year-old tell them hey kennedy chill chill bro <laughs> they're both girls hey bro chill <laughs> um hearing them have their little conversations is so funny you know this is so fun kennedy right yeah kendall this is so i'm like oh my god um Kennedy and Kendall that's so cute because you're Kennedy a girl dad Kendall. yeah um okay. honestly like I have fun doing anything with my wife uh you know going to restaurants going to movies walking through the park stealing from Walmart you know the normal stuff it's <laughs> you are a comedian <laughs> but How yeah it's a lot like of me? we met in um middle school uh I was really? actually mm-hmm I was playing with her younger brother and he came and introduced us and nothing happened. I think people think that it was like, you know, I shook her hand. It's like, oh, oh, you know, you know, music yeah. started playing in the background. It was more like, hey, what's happening? Hey, nice to meet you. See you later. Right. And um, we became friends, um, you know, in high school. Uh, we became good friends in high school, best friends. And then I tried to date her at the end of high school. And she's like, no. You need to go to college and have fun. You're going to be on the football team. I had no idea what she meant <laughs> until I got to college. Um, Baton Rouge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, we started dating near the end of college. Didn't work out. Tried it again. Didn't work out. But the third time was a charm. Third we time's a charm. Both had growing and maturing to do that. We both look back on it and, you know, can cop to it. So there you go. Yeah, I would say that our communication is probably like if it was a video game, our communication level would be ninety nine. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That I mean, that's huge in a relationship. I agree. Yeah, like, and I'm not saying the communication is flawless, but the line is open. You know what I mean? That's um, great. Yeah, because I believe that, which is weird. I talked about how I hated teams, but this family's kind of a team. But. Um, <laughs> You know, the communication helps uh, my wife and I be on the same page, which is priceless because I can't tell you how many couples are not on the same page. And then, mm -hmm. you know, this being in sync really helps. What do you guys like to do as a family? Everything I just mentioned. <laughs> yeah, same thing, though. Yeah, going to the movies. I mean, like, there's, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying I'm boring, but, like, I'm boring. Um, Boring's good. Yeah, I'm boring. Uh, now my wife, she's more exciting and she, you know, she does more things outside of the house without me, which is cool. Cause I have more time to create stuff and, you know, sit in a room and stare at the wall thinking about life and, you know, nihilism. No, I'm just playing. But, um, <laughs> yeah, she, she goes places and does stuff. Apparently we're going to go out of the country next year. So that's exciting. Cool. Um, Nowhere? No, we don't know where yet. I'm hoping London. We don't know where yet. Um, I'm hoping London. Please. Why am I saying that? Hmm? You have to say it a little louder. If she's. I'm. Ready. I'm hoping. I'm hope. I'm hoping <laughs> we go to London next year. I want to go to London. Are you on an interview? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so you never got to play in London. Yeah, we played twice. And oh, that was, that's one of the reasons back. I want to go. Like I told myself I want to go back twice. Once as like a tourist with my wife because we were married. No, we weren't married uh, the first time I went. Second time I went, we weren't married. Um, and then I could just tell it would be so much more fun if there wasn't just this football cloud hanging over my mm -hmm. head. Yeah. Um, and then I want to go back as a performer. It's looking like it's going to be as a comedian, the way comedy has like taken off like a skyrocket. Great. Um, but yeah, I would I would love to go back as a performer one day. So that's where you want to go. What's the coolest place you've been? Whether it's in the States or... Oh, I was about to say, like, I've only been to London, Mexico, <laughs> and Canada. <laughs> Just like the coolest place you've, you've traveled to or whether it's a city with the NFL or stadium or just, I don't know, a place you like to visit. The most random place came to mind. It was St. Louis, Missouri. It was a cool spot. Once again, I'm boring. So, like, there was the perfect amount of action in St. Louis for me. But it was still, like, you know, a, a larger city. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to change that. Chicago. Oh, that's where I live. Oh, nice. 
Yeah, well, but I was gonna say you could have hung with St. Louis. My dad and brother, who will listen to this, um, will be so happy you said that because they both went to college there and they love St. Louis. Oh, okay. so they don't live there, but um, my family lives in Fort Lauderdale, and my, now my brother lives in New York. So, okay. Um, but St. Chicago's Louis is one fun. of the cities I was thinking about uh, for the special. Okay, well, we'll it's come like see it. Chicago, Second, Detroit, and would you do Atlanta. it at Second City? I want to go there. Second Isn't that like an improv place though? That's not a oh, it's improv. Thing, it? oh, okay. Yeah. Well, That'd wherever, wherever, we'll come watch. Yeah, probably. We, my boyfriend and I were saying we want to go see a a comedy show. Do you have any favorite comedians? You know, or I, preferred comedians? I don't. Who should I? I I'm going to flip it back to you. Who should mine be? I mean, every that's subjective though. That's like, what I, kind of music should I be listening? Comedy is more personal than food. Have you heard that? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I was spitting something on you. Um, oh, no, it is. I mean, you it's I like being know. on stage naked. Um, you know, I I I never like watch comedy specials or anything. I'm trying to think. I've never like seen like a comedy show. Oh, so you've never okay. I've never been to one. John I don't know how you would feel about Bill Burr, but John Mulaney is hilarious. Um, Bill Burr was on Eli and Peyton's broadcast last week. He's one of my top five favorite comedians of all yeah. time. Him and my Chris Rock. Are, I know. Chris Rock, yeah. I like. Um, oh, speaking of that, if anybody knows Chris Rock or Bill Burr, they're supposed to. Be, they're both coming to Austin. I already got tickets. I'm just trying to meet them. But yeah, you know. Damn them. You should just you think they will respond. You know what's funny about that? This morning, I was on the phone with my grandma, who also will listen to this, and she was asking me something about the show, and she was like. And then she asked me something about work, and I was telling her about one of our, our brands at work is owned by The Rock, who we were just talking about, Dwayne Johnson. And she's like, why don't you have him on your YouTube? And I was like, you know, I could. Call him up. Yeah, just call him up. Why don't, you know, what if I just called The Rock? And she was like, well, so the this background is he grew up in, in Davie, Florida, which is where my parents grew up, and Southwest Ranches is, you know, a small neighborhood there. And his parents live in my parents' neighborhood. And so there is like a little bit of, of commonality, but it's really small. Like we don't know him. Yeah, but um, you can still say, if you want to see your mother again. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> if you care about your family, you'll if be on you my show. If you care about your family. Yeah. Here, handing hand his daughters the phone. Like this ain't, yeah. <laughs> this ain't one of your movies. Like, I need that interview, Chief. It's like the same thing. Like, what if you just called him up? It's like, do you know that TikTok sound from the Kardashians? Like, what if you just called Taylor up? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's the same I, thing. What if you yeah. just called Chris Rock up? What if? Yeah, you're right. I'm going to hit him you know? up today on Instagram. You I never know if you don't try. Instagram. I tried what... with Kobe, and he never responded to my DM. How did I you told him that him? next time I met him, he came and spoke to the team twice. So the first time, I was too scared. Second time, I'm like, shit, I'm going to die one day anyway. Hey, what's good, big dog? Listen. You came here last year. You were talking about people who needed mentors. I have no mentor figures in my life. I hit you up on Instagram. I don't check my Instagram. I hit you up on Instagram. You said that? I said that. Yeah, he was like, I don't I don't check my Instagram. All right, for sure. He was like, you know, a couple million followers. All right, you ain't got to flex. But, um, <laughs> but I'm looking for a mentor. And he was oh. like, come to the office, uh, you know, on your next off day. Went to wow. the office on my next off day, and everybody in the office just looked like, who the hell is that? Uh, there's a Joe Barksdale here to say, oh, yeah, send him in. You know. Um, That's a great story. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. I mean, for the short time, but it was fantastic. Like, I remember thinking to myself, like, one day I'll have, like, a music award or, you know, something that I've done. Show it to him. To show it to him, yeah. Oh, I got goosebumps. I did get my first music award this year. Congratulations. What was that? Thank you. It was in the plaque is outside the room. I'm not going to make you wait. But it was an international music award for the ble the best blues song in North America. So Canada wow. and Mexico. What's I don't know how much blues is in Mexico. but You never know. What's the name of that song? My Angel. My Angel. And what was the inspiration for that? Uh people who helped us become who we are but they're no longer with us uh just in you know just a uh what's the word ballad like written for them i like that that's really neat so, so have you started a place to collect awards like so where you can put you know 
Oh yeah, I bought a house, so I plan on filling this entire house up. No, but I mean, my studio is usually where I put my awards. I'm trying to do a better job of because I never really won awards. Let's start there, except for when I was a child, which is why I think that I'm so addicted to performing. That was like the last time I came home with hardware. Yeah, <laughs> which is depressing because I was well, like seven. You said you were on that was part of like the NFL, right? Your teams didn't win yeah they didn't win at all my wife i mean we both say that like i don't even know if i'd have been interested in music if i was on a winning team because you're just too busy winning yeah <laughs> but um what were we talking about sorry so, i interrupted you no um, it was, when you said losses i was like so oh, no, 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 no why you were why you were addicted to awards and you like or okay. not why you want want more because i was always like i always saw myself as a burden i was always called a burden by my parents they say mm -hmm. things like, "Woo, child, you need to grow up and be rich. You are not cheap to clothe and feed. Like, and you know, you start becoming part of the reason that your parents are blaming financial issues on you, you know, um, yeah. and you start to feel like a burden. You know, I remember when I was like eight or nine, it was the night before my birthday. And I asked my mom, she was like, are you excited about your birthday? I'm like, you know, it feels like things would be a lot better for everybody if I wasn't here, you know? And then my dad comes in the room and starts screaming, look what you did to your mother. Anyway, there weren't many emotional conversations yeah. that took place when I was younger. Um, but you want positive reinforcement from somebody, somebody telling you do a good job. And I found that in awards. So I used to do talent shows um, where I would do poems. And like add my little, you know, comedic improv and comedy chops in between to make people laugh. And I remember the first trophy I got. Like I remember what it looked like. It was purple. It had three little pillars on it. I mean, it, you know, the trophy was probably like ten dollars, but it meant the world to me, you know. And um from then on I was looking for that validation that way. How did that experience influence in probably a different way? How, what kind of parent you are to your girls? It made me very motivated to one, become more emotionally intelligent and two, to remind myself that I was their age once and be who I wish I had when I was their age both as a child and now, you know, like sometimes you gotta say no. Encouraging them, you know, just, I don't know, like there are things, like I can vividly remember my dad saying like, I'm proud of you. And I remember thinking like, I don't give a damn. Like, cause I was, I was like a teenager about to go to college, like, you know. Um, so those kind of things, uh, doing what I can to make sure that their self-esteem is very, not very high, but you know what I mean? Like they think that, you know, that their life has value and that, you know, the world is a better place with them in it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the kind of things that I don't think about myself. So pretty much I look at who I am and where I came from and just and not try to swing the pendulum so far the other way that you create an issue. But I would argue that's where therapy comes in to kind of stop that pendulum right where it needs to be. So, Absolutely. yeah. Okay, final question for you. Best mm -hmm. piece of advice you've ever gotten? Love what you do. Kobe and said that. Yeah, like you, you've got to love what you do if you want to be great at it. Because if you don't love it, you're not going to do what it takes to be great. Like I'm thinking about it, that even with comedy. Like right before you called, I was watching a stand-up special, taking notes. Like it's. I don't know. Like, I would have never played football for free. Mm. I would do comedy for free, you know. I don't even know if I play a music show for free. And I love music, but it's a lot of a lot of moving pieces. You know, you're carrying amps, guitars, microphones. But with comedy, are you, I mean, you pretty much show up, you know. Um, so comedy is your yeah. first love? Comedy and then music, you think? If you had a range It seems comedy? like it, yeah. Because apparently... Uh, or maybe both at the same time. Like I've been funny as long as I could feel music. So I don't know, but I know if you're asking me to pick one, it would be comedy. <laughs> like if I had to pick one that like took off and you know, that kind of thing, it would be comedy. Cause you can still do music production and that. And honestly, like you can still 
make music, but right now I'm really digging like producing for other artists and that kind of thing. I actually have a, um, a an album coming out that I produced entirely. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm not on it. Well, I'm on two songs, but it's a, a rapper that's on my label. His name's Kyle Morgan. And um, yeah, that's going to be dropping soon. Actually, at the end of the month. Okay, yeah. Okay, so yeah. while we're at it, plug some things for us. Where can everyone find you and um, find what you're working on? You can go to www.joebarksdale.com or at jbdale72 for um, Instagram and Twitter. But Kobe said, uh, you know, if you do the work, uh, dreams do come true. We know that. Um those times when you get up and you work hard, those times when you stay up late and you work hard, those times when you don't want to push yourself, you're too tired, but you do it anyway. That is actually the dream. And what you'll find is if you can do that, then your dreams won't just come true. Something greater will. So in my mind, my dreams are going to come true and something better is even going to happen because I'm focusing on like, you know, enjoying the day or at least trying to, you know, with the mental illnesses and stuff. And every day is not successful, you know, but that doesn't, I, I, my therapist talks about it too. I can't, like, I cannot quit unless it's running. If we're running, I can quit. But besides <laughs> that, I hate running. <laughs> besides oh, that, yeah. yeah, I hate running. Shout out to the Stairmaster. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it's gonna happen. It's already written. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm the person I'm supposed to be when it happens. And I'm sure that the way to do that is by, you know, enjoying the journey. And I think it's a kind of a good testament to how much our dreams can evolve. And you're a good testament to that too. Um, seeing how many things you've been able to accomplish and the things that you're able to take on and that it's never too late to change your dreams. And um, I like that message too, because I think people listening. And I certainly have kind of changed a, you know, a career trajectory. Um, and it's nice to hear that there are ways to do that and kind of, um, ever evolve your dreams. So, um, yeah. I appreciate you sharing your story and being so open and vulnerable and, um, just sharing all of those things with us. So thank you so much for, well, for your you time for and, me. um, it just all the advice and all of the things we really appreciate having you getting this. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. I hope, well, you already said you had a good time. Sorry. Sometimes my brain has time. this. Did you have a good okay. time? It was all right. Yeah, I had a good time. <laughs> of course I had a good time. I can't fake my smile. I'm not going to come to your comedy show unless you had a good time. Oh, I had a great time. It was fantastic. Yeah. I'm not doing another podcast in my life. Ordering tickets now. <laughs> Can you imagine like Joe Bark still turns down People Magazine and, you know, like Joe Bark still turns down MTV, everybody. For Jordan Black only. And just like that, like your podcast shoots through the roof. Who is this? You know. Hey. I'm not crazier doing things that. have I'm happened. Just, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs>